Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? I, in this size classroom and with our size church, maybe a little corny, but I would love to just go around and everybody say their name. Nothing else. You don't have to give me any more details. I know it's kind of uncomfortable, but that would really be good. Um, I'm excited to have this small of a class, but we also have probably new names. I know there's a few names for me that are new. So come on in, guys. Okay, do you mind if we do that? We'll start up here with one person I know at least. I'm Lee Faulkner. Christy Faulkner. We'll go this way. Uh, Dave Krumbacher. Terry I just Southwick. met Keith. Yep. Jamie We missed a few. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Go right ahead. Nancy, Nancy of course. Mary, Mary. Where we end up? Did you guys? Your names are? Ours? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I know we probably all know each other 90% of the way, but there's a few new names. At least there are for me, so thank you for doing that. And uh, thank you for being here this morning, too. Oh, did I not finish out here? Kevin? Kevin Kevin Petrites. Nancy Petrites. Dan Bell. We all know Ron. Ron Grossman. And your wife. Well, good morning. And greetings. Today's goal is really an overview. So my objective today is just kind of to look ahead at the weeks that we have. We have 10 weeks, um, nine lessons. So uh, really I want to kind of set the stage for us. I'm going to hit on the book of 1 John, the purpose, themes. Come on in. Come on in. You're welcome. Please. Uh, Purpose, themes, background, author, and then importantly how we benefit Come on in, guys. And then if we run out of room, we could have somebody just grab some extra chairs in that closet and set up however you need to informally. Thank you. So my wife and I have a tradition every Easter, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite times of year. I hope you enjoyed last week. It was exciting. Uh, But one of our traditions for Easter is to read the different accounts of the Gospels leading up to uh, that morning. And it's very exciting for us, and we've really enjoyed it over the years. A lot of years now, I think about it. Um, And one incident stood out to me, one narrative, and that is in the book of John, and I want to read that for us. And it was unique to the account in John, unlike the other Gospels. And that is in John 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for us. You know the narrative. Jesus is before Pilate. And this really stood out to me in light of what what I've been looking at and preparing for today. Jesus is before Pilate, leading up to the crucifixion. And this is the exchange. It's very brief, just a quick comment, but it really stood out to me, and that is this. Then Pilate said to him, Jesus, So you are a king. Jesus answered, 
You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And this, this is really striking. Pilate said to him, what, is, what does it say there? What is truth? And then it goes on, the narrative. But quickly, that, that just brief comment, what is truth? There's a lot there, both in what Pilate was thinking and also the culture at the time. And uh, I really want to just start by leading in with, with this. It's a question. In light of truth, is there any more important truth than this? Knowing the truth of who Jesus is. Or, knowing with certainty what it truly means to be a Christian. Or that you can even know that you really are a Christian. Or that you can know that you have the real thing. Think of all the various cultural definitions we have of Christianity today. You know, you hear some of the polls that Marshall or Dave will bring up in some of their lessons to us about, uh, you know, national <coughs> statistics of what Christianity means and yet what they leave out or what they include. Or how does our culture view convictions of absolute truth? John, would, I will tell you, would not fit in well today. He didn't fit, fit well in then either with the idea that there is no truth. That can, cannot be truth. How do you know? Any experiences with that? Show of hands. Anybody awake? There's coffee right out here. You need to have coffee. I want to start by talking about the person, John. The man. The author. Okay? The apostle. And I will tell you... This is, for me, so far, the most enjoyable aspect of my study. And I don't know if it's just because I'm familiar with the Bible reading and I, maybe I gloss over some certain things, or maybe I become familiar with uh, the idea of him being one of the apostles, but there's some really important truths that I want to lead with to, uh, to hopefully reorient us in terms of hearing from him, Okay. And I'll start by saying this is a man who never lost passion for the truth. He never lost passion for the truth. Uh, and there are a lot of extra-biblical accounts, some tradition and some actually documented accounts of him that you can see just a fiery nature and somebody who is uh, uh, not timid, right? And great stories about him to the end, fighting heresy and calling people out. Uh, he has two popular nicknames, which I think we're probably all aware of. Can someone name the nicknames when you think of John? The disciple that Jesus loved. Yes, the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's another one. With his brother, they have nicknames. Can you think of it? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. The apostle whom Jesus loved and sons of thunder, a son of thunder. Quite a combination. Uh, one of the commentaries I've been reading, a gentleman by the name of Guy Woods, and this really struck me. This is his quote about John. He, John, apparently came nearer to the heart of the Master than any other disciple. He appears to have revealed more of the heart of the Savior than any other New Testament writer. Compared to Mark... Uh, Matthew and Luke they 
in their Gospels really focused on the events that, and, and what Jesus did, whereas John emphasized how Jesus felt and how he thought. And so I really think that we need to give focus to that because there's something to be drawn uh, from the combination of truth and love. Even something to be drawn with the combination of him being known as a son of thunder and yet apostle whom Jesus loved. John really exemplified this as he grew and grew, uh, both as he aged and as he became closer to Christ. And he uh, certainly personified this, but ultimately, you know, this is harmonized, this perfect balance of truth and love. It's perfectly harmonized in who, ultimately? Jesus. That's the example. And there's a constant struggle here of upholding truth and defending truth and speaking the truth and yet being loving. And if you're like me, you would probably err on the side of thinking it's loving to not uh, defend truth in certain instances or situations. So we see how the battle for truth and loving others uh, collides. Make sense? And I am just blown away the fact that he had, he's, he's named as the person who Jesus loves. I mean, when you give thought to that, that's not just a phrase or a nickname. There's so much to that. And uh, I guess now I should bring it up too. The fact that he has outlived the other apostles at the time of this writing. Okay? He, at the cross, was given the responsibility of taking care of Jesus' mother, right? And then it kind of shifts to Paul. Peter, and John's at the end when he finally writes his letters and his gospel and the revelation. So there's time there where he obviously is just given so much thought and remembering the impact that Jesus had physically with him in those moments. So that's got to be in our backdrop. I'll move on here. Uh, he's known as the elder, the pastor. He's advanced at age, advanced in age at this time of this writing. Okay. Um, in fact, he introduces himself as the elder in the other epistles. He doesn't do it here. He doesn't name himself. In fact, John MacArthur says the fact that he doesn't name himself in 1 John actually adds credence to the fact that he did write it, which you can ask, why is that? Well, to be so direct in, as we have in this book and not name yourself shows that there's not other apostles around and that he was known, Okay. Um, so, writes with authority, is well respected, even culturally. You know, someone advanced in age is going to be respected, much like today. Um, so, I think it just is. It's very cool for us to read this book and remember that this isn't John who was <laughs> running to the tomb at a young age. This is John writing to us with some gray hairs. And uh, he's removed, uh, years removed from maybe the end for him. Uh, he had direct interaction with Jesus, outlived other apostles. And then towards the end of his life, after decades, he's now given the ink to write. Um, this is a heavy, heavy comment from the same individual, Guy Woods. It was his function, meaning John, it was his function to supplement the writings of the others and to close forever the sacred canon. 
It's a really weighty privilege. Another one that I personally am not really given thought of, the fact that, okay, well, the end, Revelation, that had to be written by somebody, and the monumental knowledge and task of that, knowing that after thousands of, of years of Scripture, he's the one that's, that's drawn an end to it. What a weighty privilege. So I hope that changes how we receive this message, spending a little bit of time on the man, John. Questions? Comments? Some of that's probably new, but most of it's probably common knowledge for us. But again, it's good for us to dig in a little bit. So, background. To set the stage of when this book was written and, and certainly the context for us, I want us to... Uh, I'll read the passage for us, but I want us to think that uh, in terms of Acts chapter 20, verses 28. Really, there's a prediction made, not by John, but by the Apostle Paul, many decades earlier in our timeline. And this is a warning to the church at Ephesus. Okay? Here's what Paul says, and I hear some pages turning, that's great. I'll have it here and I'll read it in case you don't. This is likely 57 AD, okay? Many years before 1 John is written. And here's what Paul says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Again, this is directly to the leaders at the church in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's one thing to have attacks from outside the church. It's quite another, and much worse, to have it from within. Whether indirectly or directly, and maybe even by leaders. So decades later from Paul's prediction here, decades later, probably the year 95, now there's some disputes there, but the range is late in that first century. Our author, John, writes his epistle while at Ephesus, the same church. Okay, So John, towards the end of his life, is now at Ephesus. I've heard Pastor Dave talk about man, the, the, the pastors that that church had. It's pretty awesome. But So he's ending his, his life in that area. Of course, he's eventually uh, sent to the island of Patmos. But uh, for our context, you've got to think in terms of the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> Why is it relevant that he's there? Well, he's been their shepherd. He's led many of them to the Savior, undoubtedly. He is invested, and he knows them personally. Okay. So some letters of Scripture, they're delivered, and those people don't necessarily have a personal uh, acquaintance or familiarity with each other. Not to say that the Scripture isn't valuable, but this is different. When the letters uh, reach the recipients of 1 John receive the letter, that's who they know. It's coming from the person they know and love very closely. So Paul's prophecy is really evident at the time of John's writing. And we're thinking about the background of what's going on at the time. Maybe not false teachers specifically, although I, I'm kind of led to think that that's happening. 
at a minimum, the church at Ephesus is confused. There's confusion. It comes out in the writing because the writing is intended to clarify. Okay, so there's confusion. Why? We need to ask ourselves, why is there confusion? What are they confused about? Well, at the time, and again, I'm going to quote John MacArthur, he says that there is an or uh, an art of religious inclusivism. Big words, hard for me to, to, to pronounce. Religious inclusivism, meaning there's always room for a little more religion. Pick a little bit of your religion, pick a little bit of my religion, blend it together, we're good to go, right? There's always room. Um, the irony is that that's fine unless you say your religion is exclusive, okay? If your religion is one and only, then, of course, you're not allowed in. But it was very, very common to pick and choose and blend ideas together. You have different cultures. You have Greek, uh, Roman. You have, uh, even with the geography area of where Ephesus is located, between a land between land masses, you have... Uh, continents where ideas and philosophies are all flowing together and everything's welcome and, and molded together. Kind of familiar to today, right? If you think about it. You have as much religion as you want until you say it's exclusive. So because of that, there is confusion. There is there's ultimately a lot of false teaching going on for this first century church. And at the core of false teaching both then and now, I believe, is understanding who Jesus is, right? That's at the core of it. Daniel Aiken is a name of somebody that I've been uh, reading in preparation for today and the weeks to come. He does great in, in uh, providing a quick way of thinking about the options that you have. This is what he says. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, Legend or Lord? Have you ever heard that or something similar? I like that. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, he's a legend, or he's Lord. The apostle penned First John to set this record straight. He knew what was it was absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential to get the Jesus question right. And if we go a step further with that, there's some more important issues at stake here, and that is ultimately his humanity and his deity. Okay, Believing in both of those in full, that's what's at stake. Later in chapter 4 of 1 John, John uses the term antichrists to describe people who sacrifice either of these Confessing Jesus in the flesh as God. Unbelieving Jews, they would not believe his deity. Gnostics or others at the time who uh, elevated um, all the gods, all the myths, right? I'll trust him to be God, but I don't believe he's human. So, uh, humanity and deity. We can't sacrifice any of those. Think of the incarnation in Philippians 2, right? We have a treatise there. Also, along with the core of the Jesus question of who he is, fully God, fully man, 
There's also a, a lot of ideology at the time that would say that you have to not only uh, know who Jesus is, but you have, to, you have to have a special access to God. And that's really specific to a few special people, right? Not everybody can have access to God through his word, through understanding Jesus. You have to be, uh, you have to have this higher knowledge, right? You have to have unique human wisdom, and it's limited only to a few. And then you have your club, and then you could, uh, you can implement false teaching or sneak into the church with that false doctrine. There's also an idea at the time that physical matter is evil, just by default, and yet spirit is what's good and what's holy. Um, so, therefore, if you play that out a little bit, you can't have the incarnation, right? Because flesh, sinful, wrong, evil, and yet spirit is good. But wait, we believe that Christ came and he had a body, right? So it's problematic. And I would say that if we get that wrong, we're really in trouble because... Well, it's hot in here, you just mean? <laughs> I thought I said it. If you sacrifice either of those things, then we're in a big trouble because how do you have atonement? How do we have atonement for our sins if Christ was just pretending? He was, he was actually just a visible spirit looking to be a body, but he didn't have a physical body. No, no. This leaves the door open, and you can act however you want to. If, you're, if your body's sinful already and you can't control it, then I might as well indulge, right? So my flesh, I'll live out however I want to. Um, knowing that it's my spirit that matters, right? So these ideas, these concepts, <clears throat> all of this mixed together is what makes up the false teaching that's the backdrop for our setting here where John uh, writes his epistle. And there's some debate as to how formalized these religions, these uh, false teaching, how formalized it really was. There's a lot of labels for it, um, and, and you can call it whatever. I, I I think it's probably at the beginning of this type of stuff to actually be formalized and then, uh, but nonetheless, false teaching, right? <clears throat> so it's against this backdrop that John writes his first epistle because there is confusion among the believers. And where there's confusion, this was helpful, a helpful reminder for me. Where there's confusion, there's lack of hope. You're confused about these things that matter, that are of utmost importance. You don't have hope in it. You can't have comfort. You can't have confidence. And as many commentators state, in any case, this is intended ultimately, whether it was an attack on just Jesus or access to God or you know, the idea that the physical and the spirit are, are, are incorrect. Um, ultimately, it's a warning and an instruction to the specific churches. Okay, it's a warning and instruction to specific churches. John Walford says, richly applicable to every Christian's experience. That's you and me today. This is richly applicable to every Christian experience. So that's the backdrop that some of the false teaching. <coughs> Let's talk about purpose. Why he wrote what he wrote. He wrote five books. Okay? you got the Gospel of John and the Epistles and then Revelation. And the same individual uh, by the name of Aiken, I love his alliteration here too, okay? Because he says the Gospel is to convert sinners. Convert. Letter C. Gospel converts sinners. Epistles confirm saints. Convert, 
confirm, and then Revelation, coronate the Savior. Isn't that really good? If you take all of John's writings, you can consolidate it down to those three things. The gospel was to convert sinners. The epistles, 1 John, to confirm the saints. Revelation, to coronate the Savior. And I love this. John is very, very helpful to us in that he just plain tells us what he's after. I love that. Here's John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may... No. No. These things are written that you may believe. Trick question. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You already know First John is why you said no. I'm on to you. I'm illustrating that even in the Gospel of John, he tells us his purpose. I'm writing these things so that you might believe and be converted. Uh, jump ahead, Revelation. Write therefore the things you have seen, that th- those that are, those that are to take place after this. Okay, so he's coronating the Savior, and he tells us right now, I'm telling you what is to come. Okay? Now it's under the umbrella of confirming the saints that, and let's go to 1 John. That the purpose is right there for us to read. I like that. No confusion. Elijah, can you read verse chapter 1, verse 4 for me? Verse 4? Yep. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy. I'm writing this so you have joy. Kevin, can you read... Uh, uh, I lost my place here. I was going to say 2.26, but 2.1, please. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay. Lee, would you read 2.26, please? These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Ron, can you read 5.13, please? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that awesome? That's really helpful. He just tells us why. You don't need Dave or I at all. So we're going to stop the, the lessons and we know exactly what John means here. Joy. Holiness. Clarity from false teaching and assurance of salvation. Those are awesome, awesome reasons for us to dive into this book. If you had to kind of bolster one over the others in terms of maybe how the book is shaped, it would be the last one. I think it would be assurance. Okay? So if you think of assurance, and this is where you all said no, because the word no is repeated in 1 John. You know that. So I think that Again, if we look about insurance, assurance of salvation in the family of God, <clears throat> preventing sin in the family of God, deception, protecting from false teaching in the family of God, and having joy in the family of God. That's another way to take it a little bit further in what John is getting after. These things are in the idea of fellowship for Christians. Okay, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there. I think that John 
likes saying that you can know because the day and age that he's at is saying, no, you can't know, right? What is truth? What is truth? I love that he can say repeatedly, no, no, you can know. He might be thinking about even the narrative that he wrote about Pilate and his word to Jesus. Or he might be thinking about some of the false teachers specifically at the door of the church in Ephesus. So even the idea of knowing that we can have with certainty confidence as as Christians uh, flies in the face of the philosophy of the day. Not this, not that. It's this, okay? You can know truth. And more importantly, John's focus is not just knowledge, but adhering to truth. And that's really going to come out as we we, uh, progress in the weeks to come. So let me pause just for a quick second and ask you, what about you today? Let's think about ourselves. You might be thinking, I've been a Christian for many years. These things don't apply. Or maybe these things are a real struggle. Doubts, lack of joy, repetitive struggle with sin. It is interesting that the audience, the primary audience of this church, of this book, is a church, right? Those that claim to be believers. So the idea that John is writing to believers and yet acknowledging that these are struggles implies what? It's common. Yeah. It is common for us to have doubts at times. It's common for us to struggle with sin. It's common for us to struggle with joy. Right? And at times it might be a struggle for us to have assurance. Like we talked about a couple Wednesdays ago, right? So it's inherent with Christianity, and I hope that John's purpose statements, they're so clear right in front of us, that this is welcomed from us to either convert or to confirm. Okay? Uh, Let's talk about style. The way that John writes, the, the style of this book, it's very unique. I will lead by saying it's a very personal tone. Has anybody has has anybody read First John? We should start there. Okay? There's a personal tone. There's a very pastoral uh, tone. In fact, it doesn't necessarily come across as polemic or as this is a main defense or theological treatise, much like we rely on in other areas of Scripture. This is much different. This is one you can really hear the love that John has. He's known for that coming through. <clears throat> he doesn't really come across like I'm the apostle either. Listen to me. He's not heavy-handed. It's a very personal tone from an elder. And I think this goes back to knowing that he's of age, too. You're hearing from somebody who has years now. Remembering Christ, living for Christ, battling through some of these same things, and has wisdom. Uh it's clear terms. I love, this is so refreshing. Again, maybe it's just because current events, but he is very, very clear. He is not ambiguous. Okay, John's writing. It's very black and white. It's cut and dry. It's direct. It's not disguised. It's objective. And stylistically, he likes to contrast things. And I like that. <coughs> I like that. Again, versus a culture then and there where everything or much is relative, right? 
in fluid you pick at the time what you like. For example, again, coming back to this idea of Jesus. Uh, I think Jesus, uh, he was a legend, right? Um, he was just an unbelievable figure, but quite honestly, I think he was just spirit. I think this whole idea of him being human is, is false. You know, I think he just presented himself. He was all-powerful as a God. He just presented himself as um, as Jesus. He wasn't physical. Well, John ta- attacks that. I heard him. I've seen him. I've touched him. He's the word, the life. He's the word of life, the Christ. So I'm not beating around the bush here. That's direct. Or the idea of sin, right? Uh, sin is inevitable. I can't. I, I just might as well indulge in my lust, live how I live, because... Um, that's what it means to have to, to be in the flesh. No, only though this is John. Only those who do righteous are righteous. Only those who are pure have hope. And here it is: those who habitually sin are of the devil. That's direct, right? It's direct, straightforward. Many have called his style a poetic sermon. I like that. I think that's really cool. Think of it as a as a poetic sermon to us. It's not linear. There's an ancient technique called amplification it's not that important it's just helpful to know that that is how uh, it's recognized that his his style is uh, very cyclical okay it's very almost repetitive quite honestly so you're not going to get a b c one two d you're going to get a a sweeping repetitive cyclical style okay and the, what that means is that there's going to be symbols and concepts and themes that are hit on and then revisited and revisited again. Each time, John taking a little bit more emphasis here or there to give us the big picture. Make sense? And quite honestly, that's a really major challenge for people who like to outline the book and like to have stuff in front of them. Uh, and you, as, as we read other uh, commentaries, uh, Dave, I think you can attest to this, there's a lot of discussion and disagreement on how you even go about outlining this book. Um, so we, we have an approach that we think is going to be hopefully helpful to us. All right, what's more important than that is content. Okay, we have our style. Here's the content. This is what he wrote. Talked about how he wrote. Talked about why he wrote. This is what he wrote. It's been said that it is so similar that it's almost inseparable from the Gospel of John. So in terms of content, you really hear the chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John in 1 John. That's where Jesus is washing the feet, his disciples, all the way through his high priestly prayer. In my Bible, it's a lot of the red. Right? So you're going to hear Jesus' teaching kind of coming through specifically from his gospel repeated, uh, repeated here. <clears throat> but if you want to know the, the Cliff Notes version of the content of 1 John, it's tests. I don't like tests, but that's what's here for us. Okay, So you can't blame me. Tests. We have doctrinal and moral tests. Doctrinal and moral tests. I think many in this room would be able to tell me right now what they are. Faith, love, and obedience. Woven through the whole five chapters. Um, Aiken calls this the avenues of assurance. I like that. You know, avenues of assurance. Again, the idea of confirming the saints. Faith, love, obedience. They are just 
woven in all of his passages. He repeats it many times. Again, coming back and revisiting this idea. The primary doctrinal test, again, is getting the Jesus question right. Okay, So the doctrinal test of faith is really faith in Jesus and getting that right. <clears throat> Mark Dever helped me in remembering that when you talk about doctrine, a lot of times uh, people just shut down immediately or reject it. That's old news. That's archaic. Doctrine, doctrine divides. Doctrine does not promote unity. Doctrine uh, does not uh, support um, the diversity that we want among brothers. John would say no. It's fundamental. If we don't get that right, um, we have to get it right. Doctrine is fundamental. This moral test, I'm sorry, the doctrinal test of faith, we have to get that right. It cannot be compromised. Mark Dever says, it's not so much that we deal today with unbelief or atheism or something like that. It's more that we have wrong belief. I think that's very insightful. It's not so much wrong uh, unbelief, it's wrong belief. Or you could say it's not that people are irreligious, it's that there's heresy. Okay, those are strong words. When you talk about moral tests, and Dave, you really helped me uh, remember to reiterate this and set us up. Moral tests of love and obedience. we got to remember that that's not necessarily what we do to become Christians, right? But what John uh, points us to is that this is going to be a result found in those that are Christians, okay? It's a very slippery slope for us to be merit-driven or, or works-based. Is it important how we live? I know it's warm in here, but you can tell me. You can talk to me. <laughs> Is it important how we live? Of course, it is linked to what we believe. It is linked to what we believe. And so partially, or maybe indirectly, maybe somewhat directly, John is addressing those who claim to be Christians, but they are showing a pattern of sinful living. Okay. So under content, we have those tests, moral tests, doctrinal tests, faith, love, and obedience are just <coughs> strewn across. And then we have some major themes, okay? Some major themes that are uh, really evident. In the book. The first one, primary one, I would say is fellowship. Okay? Fellowship. And that's sharing in truth. You know, I led with this idea of truth. You know, if we understand the truth of who Christ is, the truth of Scripture, then we have fellowship, okay? We plan to look at the chapters to come and and express, uh, hopefully teach this book, all kind of couched in the idea of fellowship. And this idea of fellowship, again, Dave, thank you this week, it's not just horizontal, it's not just vertical. When I say those things, I'm talking about fellowship with God. That's individual fellowship, okay? Um, individual fellowship with God, a personal level, vertical, and then we also have horizontal, and that's corporate. That's with other believers, right? We have that. We have fellowship. It's a major theme in First John, sharing in the truth. There are some others, 
and they are usually couched in very vivid uh, contrasts, very pointed contrasts. Here's some, and I think you know this if you're familiar with the book at all. Life, light, truth, righteousness, love, love of the Father, victory, versus sin, darkness, lies, unrighteousness, love of the world. Again, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't deal in the middle. He deals on these contrasts to help us. <clears throat> Let's take your eyes, go to verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. In terms of content, John takes these tests, he takes these themes, and he kind of puts it in two buckets, so to speak. I'll call it messages, because he does. 1 verse 5. This is the message we have from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So again, he tells us what his message is. Uh, turn the page, probably. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Another way to look at it is the moral test and the doctrinal test, right? Doctrinal up front, knowing that God is light. And then the other message of our moral tests, loving one another. Make sense? So you kind of have these two messages. You have themes across. I should say we have tests across and we have our major themes throughout. And John's going to just cycle through all that as we look at the, the chapters to come. There are a couple difficult sections in this book. Namely, there's an idea that maybe Christians never sin. If I read some of his words, I'm going to take away that Christians never sin. Okay? Or the idea of how confession really plays into salvation. Uh, there's also a passage that talks about the spirit, water, blood. That combination is a little tricky. And also there's a sin unto death. So I strategically placed our schedule in such a way that uh, Dave has all those passages that are a little bit tricky. Or Marshall, because we're going to have Marshall come in for one week as well. Uh, so we're going to take our time with those and really understand those passages as well. So there's some difficult sections. <clears throat> but why this book? And we'll draw to a close here. Talked about truth. Talked about the man, John himself, which I hope helps us. Talked about the background with false teaching. The purpose, why this was written, the style of how he writes, and what he's writing, content, with themes, etc. But why this one for us today? Well, I think it's this. It's intensely practical. And it's good to get back to the basics. Do you guys agree? If there's one thing that uh, sports taught me, it is you have to revisit the fundamentals, okay? Uh, and that's true for us as well. I think all of us, too, all, will benefit from John's Gospel. If you will, let me revisit where I started, and that's the idea of truth. <clears throat> is there any more important truth than this? Knowing the truth of who Jesus is. 
knowing with certainty what it means to be a Christian and knowing confidently that you are one, that you have the real thing. Okay, this book will bring us directly to those questions because John brings us directly with who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower. That's good stuff. Uh, also, why us today? And if you were to forget everything but hear this sentence today, this would be it. Also from Aiken. I really have quoted him quite a bit today, Daniel Aiken. This is us, Christians, new and old. Okay, Might be, might be fun for us to, to determine who's the oldest and newest Christian. Here it is. It is possible to know Christ and have doubts. It is also possible to profess Christ and be a liar. I'm going to read it one more time. This is for us today. It is possible to know Christ and have doubts. It is also possible for us to profess Christ and be a liar. To end on a more positive, he wrote, John wrote, that we might be confirmed. And here's some of the awesome uh, victories that we read in the book. And with this, I'll close. You got victory over sin, victory over the evil one, victory over righteousness, victory over love, victory in love, I should say, and victory in faith. Again, victory over sin, victory over the evil one, victory in righteousness, in love, and in faith. Are those things that we should be excited about and yearn for? Yes. Yes. Any comments? I'm excited. And we'll, next week we'll start with chapter 1. So let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father God, thank you so much for your scripture. Thank you for the clarity that it brings to us. And Lord, where things are not clear, thank you that we know that those are not essential truths, but things that we can dig in and ultimately still trust as a result of. Thank you for the person of John, this man who you loved and who, late in his life, just wrote amazing, amazing scripture. An apostle who knew you, who then shared those truths with the first church, and now we have those same uh, truths in front of us, Lord. What an amazing, amazing uh, fact. Thank you that we can know you. Lord, if we have doubts, if we're struggling with joy, struggling with our assurance we're struggling with certain sin patterns lord may this chapter uh, these, these chapters to follow just be an encouragement to us and uh, we benefit from it and thank you for our church may you be glorified uh, and honored and collectively this morning as we worship you and it's in your name i pray amen, amen. all right thank you all